Good afternoon. This is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Hard Barks to Zebras. We're here every fourth Thursday at four o'clock to tune in. We want to be live, but we still cannot be. So this is a taped show. So uh, listeners can't call in this time. I'm hoping to have a live show soon. As always, I do advertise my other radio show, Pet Sounds, which is done at 7.30 in the morning on Sunday, the three-minute shorts. So please tune in, uh, wake up Sunday morning, just to listen to me, then you can go back to sleep. Uh, so today, I have a special guest, this uh, young lady, uh, Dr. Ann Zajac, was a former student, fellow student, that we, we went to Michigan State University together. We graduated together. So we went through three and a half years of uh, studying, so to speak. And we haven't seen each other in 38 years. It's the first time we got reunited through Zoom. So it's really a pleasure and uh, so fun to get connected with a fellow classmate because we, we share something that no one else shares. We have a special connection. So welcome, Dr. Ann Zajac. Well, thank you so much. As you say, uh, those people you go to vet school with, you just, you have a special connection with them forever. And so it's really delightful to reunite with you today. It is with me too. Thank you. So let's, we're going to talk about parasites because we're going to go by first name basis, Anne and and John. Anne, uh, from Actually, you got interested, I, I remember parasites, even at Michigan State, is a parasitologist, and I'm going to let Ann tell all of you how she became that and what she's doing now. So give us your background. Okay, well, uh, as, you, as you say, I'm a parasitologist, and uh, I've had people misunderstand that over the years. I, I sat next to someone uh, on a plane once who for the longest time thought I was a parrot psychologist. <laughs> we had a not very productive conversation about parrot psychology. <laughs> but uh, in fact, what I do is uh, work with parasites of animals. And that's uh, an interest that I developed right after I'd gotten my bachelor's degree many years ago now. And I uh, I needed a job, and I ended up working for a parasitologist uh, who studied uh, tapeworms. And I then uh, decided after a while that I'd like to pursue that. And so I did a master's degree at Michigan State and then uh, uh, got interested in veterinary medicine there and decided that the best job of all would be to study parasites and be a veterinarian at the same time. So I went on, uh, went on and did uh, both things and became, got a PhD in parasitology as well. And for the last 38 years, I have been at Virginia Tech, uh, at the Veterinary College at Virginia Tech, where I teach veterinary students about parasites of animals and do research on parasites of animals. So when, when so, you're teaching the students, you teach a first and third year, or just uh, which courses do you teach at 
the vet school there. I teach, I teach uh, kind of throughout the curriculum, and we've just had a curriculum change, which, you know, messed everything up. Uh, so it's not as easy to describe where parasites come in the curriculum anymore. But I have contact with students throughout their four years of, of vet school. And did you... Um did you try not to make the mistakes or be a kind of professor you didn't like at Michigan State when you were teaching in Virginia? Uh, boy, uh, I think it's possible to, uh, to not be aware of your shortcomings as a professor. Uh, and so I guess I tried to be sympathetic, always tried to be sympathetic to the students, but, uh, but now that I'm in the teacher's shoes, I can, I can understand some of their impatience with us <laughs> when we were students. I remember quite clearly the hearing, I don't remember which faculty member it was, but he, he said that uh, we, our class had the reputation of being not very bright, but very nice. <laughs> I've never heard that before all these years. I can't, I can't remember who that was, but it, it struck me at the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course it's not true. No, of course. We're, we're, we're bright and nice. <laughs> yes. So, heck with him or her, whichever one it was. So your, uh, your, your research in parasites, what was your research or what's your research now? Or? So I've, uh, I've always been interested in parasites in the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, many, many parasites, as you know, live in the gut. That's a common site for them. And I've been interested in, uh, especially in the GI parasites of ruminants and have worked a lot with sheep and uh, how uh, sheep and goats are able to manage their parasites and how we, uh, we, how we as owners can control parasites in them. And then I've also been interested in uh, Giardia, which is a pretty common parasite in dogs and cats and people, uh, and uh, have looked at, at uh, the relationship of, of that parasite uh, to its hosts and how we diagnose and control Giardia in animals. Let's get down to basics. Let's uh have you define to our listeners what a parasite is by definition? Okay. Well, a parasite is any organism that really derives its, its sustenance from another organism or is dependent on another organism for its nutrients. So in its broadest sense, you'll hear people talk about really any infectious agent as a parasite. People can refer to viruses and bacteria as parasites too. But when you look at the discipline of parasitology and what parasitologists study, we're specifically focused on organisms that are more complex than viruses and bacteria. So I'm especially interested in worms. Worms are my favorite. But you've also got insect parasites like lice and fleas. And then there are some complex single-celled parasites like malaria, 
um, angiardia that I mentioned. So it's really infectious agents, but not, but are, we're not really that interested in bacteria and viruses, although you will hear bacteria and viruses referred to as parasites. So another term that you hear is host. Mm -hmm. So what is a, a host? So a host is, is the source of the nutrients for the parasite, right? So if you have, if you're a dog with fleas, you're providing the, the blood diet uh, for the fleas, um, you're the host. But some parasites, which has always fascinated me, is the intricacy of the life cycle. For instance, the deer tick, they have more than one host. Right. So that's, so, so kind of explain that, how does that work? So uh, parasites, you mentioned life cycle, and the concept of life cycle is very, very important to to us parasitologists. And, and part of the fascination of parasites is the complexity of the life cycles they can have. So you mentioned the deer tick, and that's a, a, a tick that has to have a blood meal three times in its life. And in its life cycle, it finds a host to provide that blood meal, then leaves that host then has to find a second host to get another blood meal, leaves that host, goes back into the environment, and then finds a third host in order to have a life cycle. Our flea, talking about the flea, uh, the flea's quite different. An adult flea is, needs a, a host to provide a blood meal, but it finds that dog or cat host and then just basically stays on that animal until, it, until it's going to die. It's no longer um, going to continue as an adult. Um, there are, uh, you have a dog with a tapeworm, a common tapeworm. That tapeworm had to go through two different hosts. So it started off as an egg that had to go through a larval development stage in a flea. And then as an adult, is going to be in the dog. So life cycles can involve um, switching between members of the same host species like the deer tick, or it could involve using uh, different, multiple different host species like the tapeworm that uses the flea and the dog at different stages. Is there anybody that has studies the evolution of life cycles of parasites? How did that develop? Is there, a, is there kind of an idea of uh, how these complex life cycles came to be? There's lots of theorizing about how life cycles developed and, and particularly these, the complexities, the, the ones that are really complex. There's, um, as you'll remember, there's a whole group of parasites called flukes and all flukes have as the first host in their life cycle, they all use a snail. And then depending on the different species, they'll go on to use other hosts, but they're different animals. And so the theory there is that they probably all started out as parasites of snails. And then over evolutionary history, 
they were able to go from the being a parasite of snails to making a, uh, a move from the snail into another type of animal. And gradually over time, the life cycles um, uh, became fixed where they would go from the snail to another animal and then often again to a third animal where they would become adults and produce uh, eggs and, and the life cycle would continue. So some of them, it's easier to see or to imagine and, and hypothesize how that life cycle might have evolved. In others, it's how, how on earth did that happen? It just seemed yeah. incomprehensible. Yeah. So the th one of the theories is that it's, it started simple, and then through circumstances of the right. environment, it was able to survive in another animal over hundreds of thousands right. of years. Yeah. And that was dependable enough to extend that life cycle, then it, it got more complicated. Right. Okay. right. Wow. Yeah. I, I never, it's, it's just amazing. It's it just is amazing. Really, uh, nature is remarkable. Yeah. So we'll talk some, talk about some of the common parasites of our dogs, cats, horses, and cows, we have some time. So the, the common worm in, in dogs, the three, the three biggies are hooks, whips, and rounds. I'll say that real quick. And then there's some other ones that, that dogs eat, but those are the big ones. Giardia is another one. So in, so I like to say one word or less, um, just kind of go over the, and, and not only go over very briefly what the, what the parasite does, but are they zoonotic? Do they affect humans? Because that's kind of my, my uh, underlying theme here is what parasites do we have to worry about right. for us? Okay. So well, go over this. In um, dogs, and, dogs and cats, um, both are commonly infected with roundworms. Um, there's one species in dogs, one species in cats, so they don't infect each other, right? So you, okay. you, That's your dog that eats, the dog that eats the kitty, the cat feces out of the litter box is not going to get roundworms from the cat. You know, that doesn't happen. But they each get infected with roundworms. The roundworms live in the small intestine. And if there's just one or two there, they don't do much of anything. The problem really occurs as the numbers uh, build up and uh, you've got the worms uh, causing some, uh, some damage in the intestinal tract, um, competing for resources, um, eliciting an immune reaction, that kind of thing. Now, uh, roundworms are one of the parasites that can infect humans. And uh, when the adult worms pass eggs out in the feces of animals. Uh, the eggs take uh, several weeks in order to develop to a stage where they could infect another animal. Uh, but if a human were to ingest those eggs, those infective eggs, um, the parasite would, the, egg, the larva would hatch out of the egg. The larva would say, well, I'm in an animal, I'm gonna give it a try. And it would try to carry out its life cycle. It would start a migration through the human and could possibly reach a, an organ where 
uh, it might cause some problems like the eye. The eye is probably the site where a single worm can cause the greatest problem. Um, so the big thing, this, this is not, uh, this is not uh, so common that you can't have a pet by any means, but it's important to pick up fecal material. You, I, I cannot, as a parasitologist, I'm fixated on fecal material, <laughs> and, and I can't emphasize enough how important it is for a whole variety of parasites and other organ, microorganisms. It's so important to pick up fecal material. Ideally, if you have a dog or cat every day, remove the fecal material. Um, so that there's there's then no risk of of infection occurring in people, of infection occurring to other animals. So get the fecal material out of there. Wash your hands after uh, contact uh, with fecal material or or with animals. Um, uh, but uh, roundworms are are a parasite that has potential for zoonosis. Hookworms are much more common in dogs than they are in cats, although there, there is some hookworm infection in cats. Hookworms live in the small intestine and they feed on blood. And so the damage that they do to animals, if you have a lot of hookworms there, they can make animals even anemic. Uh, and then they also cause diarrhea uh, and can, can make uh, dogs, especially where we see them the most often, they can make dogs quite sick, especially puppies. And I should say that with roundworms too, young animals are especially um, susceptible to infection. Uh, so hookworms um, uh, also could infect people, uh, but it's a slightly different situation in that when hookworm eggs are passed by animals, the uh, the larvae develop in the egg and then they hatch out. And their way of infecting new hosts, new dogs, is uh, one of the, the most successful ways they have is they actually penetrate through the skin. So you have a dog lying in its kennel on dirt. And if there are hookworm larvae in the soil, they'll actually penetrate through the dog's feet, through the dog's uh, stomach as he's lying on the ground. And then they migrate through the dog, make their way to the small intestine and develop. If, if you're lying on the ground next to the dog, those hookworms don't know any different and they could penetrate through your skin too. And then they can migrate. Uh, and usually the most severe consequence is that they create an extremely itchy lesion as they're migrating through the skin. It's very rare for them to get beyond the point of migrating through the skin, but it's, um, I've never had it happen to me, but I understand it's extremely irritating and itchy and uh, much better to avoid having that happen. And I think for the common hookworm that we would see in Virginia or that you'd have up in Maine, um, it's, uh, it's not the most aggressive uh, in causing human lesions of the different hookworm species, but it's still possible. And I always tell the vet students, when you go to the beach, take a towel and do your sunbathing on the towel, not directly on the sand, just in case there's some hookworm larvae there.
but uh, so that's is another it, one. Yes, go ahead. That's common in uh, in more southern states. Yes, kids, kids running around in bare feet. Yeah, that kind of thing. yeah, uh, particularly along the Gulf Coast region, yeah. kind of up the uh, eastern seaboard areas is where you get the most cases of it. It could happen anywhere there are hookworms, but most you're absolutely right, more common in the southeast. And then the third one, the whipworm, that one lives in the large intestine. That's a parasite we really don't see in cats, only in dogs. It too can can cause some blood loss and cause diarrhea. And that one, we don't really worry about causing infections in people. But, it, but it's more common than we think in dogs. Is that not right? We used to think in my day, whipworms, because they didn't make very many eggs, so we didn't see them in the, the stool. Right. Uh, we thought that, that they weren't there, but is, is that true yes, that there's more whips than we think there are in dogs? They're very, they're very common parasite. Now, if you do surveys, which have been done of like uh, dogs in animal shelters, you find geographic variation. So hookworm is most common in the southeast. Um, roundworms, surprisingly to me, seems to be more common in the northeast. And I, I would have thought it was just common everywhere, but it seems like it's more common in the northeast. Uh, whipworm, also uh, more in the southeast and middle of the country, uh, but also up in the in the in the north. I mean, they're everywhere, but there's a little bit of geographic variation. In they don't uh, like heat and dry, country. right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. I didn't hear what you said. Uh, they they the eggs don't survive well when it's hot and dry, right? Exactly. They like the moist. Right. So, and in fact, I had a student, I did a student with a, pro, a project with a student once on uh, the ability of the eggs of hooks and rounds and whips to survive uh, washers and dryers. Oh. <laughs> That's a good study. Yeah. And in fact, <laughs> they, they, they did fine in the washing machine. That was no problem for them. It's but the heat. dryer. The dryers, yeah. If you uh, if you put clothes in a dryer and run it on full heat, uh, it that definitely kills them. And surprisingly, though, the whipworms survived the best. Wow. Yeah. Now, one unique parasite to cats is a worm called Toxoplasmosis, and there's a lot of misinformation about that, especially from human doctors to pregnant women. Uh, can you just kind of briefly, before you go into it, I want to just say to my listeners, this is WERU in East Orland, 89.9. And I am with Dr. Ann Zajak, and we're uh, talking about parasites. This is Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. Dr. Hunt, John Hunt, your host. And we're talking about worms with Dr. Okay. Ann Zajak, a parasitologist. Okay. So getting back to cats and toxoplasmosis. Okay, well, toxoplasma is not actually a worm. It's uh, so you would not be able to see it. You know, everything I've talked about so far, if I had it sitting out, you'd see it. It's big enough to be obvious and you'd see it and you'd say, oh, there's a worm. Toxoplasma is just a single-celled parasite, so it's microscopic. And it's a parasite of cats. It lives in the, uh, the intestinal tract of cats. Very rarely does it make cats sick. 
Um, generally, you would never know that a cat had been infected. But what's important about toxoplasma is that cats usually get infected because they eat toxoplasma in another animal. So its life cycle is specialized to, uh, excuse me, to, uh, to use prey animals to get into cats. So the eggs of toxoplasma come out in the feces of cats and in the environment they get ingested by really any other kind of warm-blooded animal. So it could be a bird, it could be a rodent, it could be a sheep, it could be a, a squirrel or anything. It could also be a human. And then in, in those other animals, the toxoplasma organism just goes and hangs out in the tissues and lives there for years, hoping that one day a cat will come along and eat it. And then if it can get into a cat, it can continue its life cycle and eventually make more eggs or oocysts is the term that we use for toxoplasma. So in many, in many host animals, the toxoplasma really doesn't do that much damage to these animals that, that it's using to get back into the cats, but it can, and there's, there's um, a number of different animals that can cause abortion in sheep and goats, for example, it can cause some disease problems in other animals. But the concern about people has been primarily over the years that if a woman gets infected for the first time with toxoplasma when she's pregnant, the toxoplasma organisms will also go into the baby developing into the uterus, developing in the uterus and cause potentially very serious developmental problems. It can cause brain damage. It can cause um, uh, uh, problems uh, in other tissues, in the eyes, all these developing organs. Uh, also, it can even cause abortion in people. So there's been a lot of, of public information about the danger of having cats around if you're pregnant. Well, really, cats get infected with toxoplasma and produce this egg or oocyst stage only for a couple of weeks in their lives. That's usually probably when they're young. And so the risk of a mature cat even passing these, these uh, eggs out is, is pretty low to start with. Uh, and then it's merely a question of not get having contact with feces there's very little risk from contact with the cat itself so any physician who tells a woman who's expecting a baby to get rid of their cat that's really not necessary we we usually say get someone else to clean out the litter box and that's that's the that'll take care of it wash your hands. The biggest message is wash your hands before you eat. And you should be doing that always anyway. And the other way that people get infected with toxoplasma is by ingesting the little toxoplasmic, toxoplasma cysts in meat, because they can also be in meat. So you need to also be careful if you're handling raw meat um, 
and wash your hands before you eat. The toxoplasma organisms could be in the soil. So if you're gardening, wash your hands before you eat because the only way people are going to get infected with the toxoplasma, if you're pregnant or not pregnant, is by ingesting the organism. So don't stick your hands in your mouth without washing your hands. Or use garden gloves. Right. Use gar gardening gloves. Yeah. Yeah. But if a woman had been exposed to toxoplasmosis early in her life and was not pregnant, then she became pregnant. So a previously exposed pregnant woman can't, are they safer? They can, uh, much during pregnancy? It, would be, during pregnancy? it would be rare. It would be rare for a woman to have problems during pregnancy with toxoplasma if she had been exposed earlier in life because you become immune uh, and uh, that immune immunity protects you to any subs protects you from subsequent exposure to toxoplasma when you're pregnant so it would be rare that there would be a problem I, ideally you 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 know I've, I've had students say well then why don't I just go out and get exposed to it before <laughs> I get pregnant you know I'll vaccinate myself no, you don't want to do that. That's not. <laughs> it sounds logical. Yeah, but, but don't is. do that because <laughs> if uh, the other problem is it does stay in you, it does live in you for a long time. And if you were to become immunosuppressed, if your immune system, um, if you had an organ transplant and had to take drugs to suppress your immune system, or you had to take. Uh, drugs that suppress the immune system because you have cancer, you can get, uh, toxoplasma can kind of wake up and, uh, and start developing again. So you don't, you, don't want to, you don't want to intentionally get it by any means. Those darn students, they always have harebrained ideas, don't That's they? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Just briefly, um, I'm not, not sure if it's up here in New England, but the raccoon roundworm, Bascoscaris, is that how you pronounce it? Bailus ascaris. Bailus Okay, Bailus ascaris. I'm horrible at pronouncing. And it's quite dangerous. Is that a problem up here? And just briefly, how is that, that raccoon roundworm uh, zoonotic? How does that affect people? Well, that raccoon roundworm, to look at it, you would think it's a dog roundworm. They look very similar. And they're, and they're related, and it lives in the small intestine of raccoons, just like the, the dog roundworm lives in, in the intestine of dogs. And in the raccoon, the adult worms, um, the adult female worms, they, they, they are males and females. They're just like us. I tell students, too, worms are just like us. You got <laughs> to appreciate what they do. The female worms uh, produce eggs that come out in the feces, in the environment, they develop to a stage where they can infect other animals. And again, really, when any kind of animal ingests those eggs, the, the, the Bayless ascaris larvae, they can't develop to be adults in any other kind of animal than raccoons. They, have, they can only be adults in raccoons. But the larvae can um, hatch. They can say, I'm in an animal. They can migrate into the tissues. And they can just be dormant. They don't die. They live for several years. And again, they're just hoping that a raccoon might come along and eat that animal. 
And if a raccoon eats that muscle tissue or the tissue that the larva's in, then that uh, Bayless ascaris larva can finally say, hey, I'm in a raccoon and go ahead and become an adult. So in that, we were talking about evolution. It seems like in that case, especially because raccoons are kind of scavengers and they'll eat, uh, they're opportunists, they eat kind of whatever's out there. It was a good idea for the parasite to use other animals as a means of transport to get into a raccoon. And that's probably why they do so successfully migrate in other animals. And so again, if, if it's a human that ingests those eggs, the, the larvae doesn't know that their chances of being eaten by a raccoon are pretty much zero. If they're in a human, they just go ahead and say, well, I'm in another animal. Maybe if I hang out here, a raccoon will come along and, and eat me. So they'll migrate in human tissue and, uh, and then eventually just sit quietly. But the problem in people, this parasite tends to migrate to the nervous system. They have a kind of a predilection to migrate, to a preference to migrate to the nervous system. And so there have been cases in humans, in children especially that- Usually children, yeah. Yeah, that, that uh, there's one in particular, I remember that it was a, a little toddler who would go and play in a corn crib on a farm and pick up these bits of these corn kernels that were just lying around and suck on them. And raccoons had defecated, uh, dumped their feces in that corn crib. And so this little child picked up a number of those larvae that went to the brain then. And, and I believe that child might have survived but had irreversible brain damage. So it, it really is a, of concern. You don't want to feed raccoons on your deck and then have raccoons defecate uh, in, in areas where you're going to have children, uh, especially young children, playing. Playground, playground areas, sandboxes, decks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. Now, I don't know how common it is in Maine raccoons, but I, it's much better to assume that it's common and, and act accordingly. Some of our listeners do have some large animals, uh, horses. They're scattered around. Um, I wish we had a lot more time, but could you maybe tell us a number one parasite that horses get and maybe and or uh, a zoonotic parasite that we have to worry if there is any. Well, I don't, I can't say I worry too much about acquiring parasites from horses as a human. You know, I mean, that's not, uh, they really aren't carrying, uh, if you eat horse meat, yes, maybe then, but not from contact with horses. And I think the, the biggest problem we have in horses right now would be the worms in the GI tract because we've been so, so um, careful to manage parasites in horses and, and deworm them with drugs so conscientiously that we now have a big a problem with drug resistance uh, to, our, to the drugs we use for these GI worms in horses. And uh, if any of your, uh, your listeners with horses uh, may have been hearing from their veterinarians that we need to start managing our uh, parasite control in horses differently. 
And instead of doing things like deworming horses monthly or every couple months throughout the year, come what may, every horse gets treated the same way. We're, we're trying to emphasize management programs now where we try to identify the horses that really need to be dewormed, treat those, and then uh, not deworm horses that, that don't uh, clearly need to be dewormed. So we're trying to back off a bit um, and not use so many drugs uh, in horses so that we don't lose them. We, we're risking losing all our dewormer drugs for horses. So that means you do a, a stool check, check yep. for eggs yep. on, on a cow, just like a dog? I mean, a horse, just like a dog? Well, it's a different sort of test so that we're actually counting the number of eggs that we see in the sample and then setting up some categories. Because uh, these parasites are transmitted from horses ingest them when they graze, uh, there's no way to make a grazing animal completely parasite-free. We, we just cannot do it without uh, losing the drugs, without creating resistance, because you have to deworm so frequently. So we're trying to establish some categories where we say, these horses, these adult horses have their own immune response. Their own immune response is perfectly good. And it allows them to have a few worms present, but not to do any damage. So let's, let's not treat those animals. Let's concentrate on treating the animals where their immune, immune response maybe needs to be supplemented. So especially young animals, they need more attention from us when it comes to controlling the worms. So we're trying to be judicious in saying, let's concentrate our efforts where they're really needed. The other thing horse owners can do is pick up manure. Oh. Then horses- horsey you, bags, like horse, doggy bags? You, <laughs> yes, uh, a shovel <laughs> in the bucket works. You can yeah. get a pasture vacuum and you can pasture it. When you think about cows, you can't really rem remove cow manure. It's just too wet. But a horse manure is nice and firm, and you can scoop it up and remove it. And that's the best uh, worm control of all. Did you say something like va vacuum? A vacuum? You can get pasture vacuums. Yeah. That pasture vacuum. Pasture vacuums that you would use for leaves or, or anything else. Oh, it sucks anything. up the old Sucks up the manure as well, yeah. Any other management? Uh, techniques that, that veterinarians are going to be helping owners with to minimize uh, well, besides pick up the poop? You, uh, it would be great if we could say, you know, if you could put your horses on another pasture for a couple weeks, then by the time they went back to that original one, it would be, there would be no more parasites left, but it doesn't work like that. You can take animals off one pasture and let that pasture sit and the parasites will die, but it, it takes months uh, for that to happen, really. So uh, that kind of pasture rotation, a lot of people can't, can't afford to do that. They don't have the pasture available. Um, uh, we talk about, you know, I always like to tell people, if you do have multiple pastures, you want to think about putting your most vulnerable animals on the pasture with the fewest parasites. And so it's always the young animals. Um, we'll see uh, horse owners who maybe always keep their weanlings on the same pasture 
and their um, non-breeding horses on another pasture. You know the right. the young, more than yearlings, but you know they're not actually breeding them. In fact, if you put the weanlings always on the same pasture, those pastures get terribly contaminated because they're the most susceptible age group. And their feces contains masses and masses of eggs. So what you want to do, if you can, is put the young animals on a pasture that's been most recently grazed by adults that are immune and don't pass many eggs out in their manure. So there's things you can do. You just want to be kind of thinking about the, the pastures out there, it's got parasites on it. And when you, when you own grazing animals, you own their parasites too, and you probably have quite a few of them. So you want to think about how to minimize um, exposure of those really vulnerable animals. And I assume a good diet and keeping them healthy Absolutely. gives you a good immune system to keep them yes. down too. Yes, so diet is hugely important, yeah. Is it basically just one, there, there's a couple worms that horses get, right? Well, they get uh, a whole family, there's like 40, 50 species wow. live in the large intestine of horses as adults and horses might have they'll have a selection of them just a variety of them uh, they get a roundworm too that's very common in young horses that lives in the small intestine just like the other roundworms we've been talking about horses get pinworms um, not the same as the human pinworm. Horses cannot infect people with pinworms. That's a very common question. Yes. And dogs and cats don't have pinworms. That's right. They don't. That's another common because dragging the, dragging the bottom is the only way people get pinworms is from other people. That is okay. That, I hope my listeners hear that and remember that. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's our pinworm uh, statement for the, for the month. That's right. That's right. So how about cows? Cows, um, cows get uh, the same kind of GI worms. You know, they're, they're similar in their life cycle and, and what they do to the ones in horses, you know. That, and they're the most Im important worms in cows. Cows uh, also get coccidia. And this would be calves, especially. Again, we see most of the disease from parasites in, in horses and in cows in young animals. That's where the disease really occurs. Uh, animals, as they, get, as they grow up and they become mature, their immune response allows them to a large degree to not eliminate infection, but to control it uh, pretty effectively. So uh, again, with, with cattle, we like to say, concentrate your management on the vulnerable animals, that the young, especially the younger animals. The same is true with sheep and goats. And I, have to, I just have to say for sheep and goats right now, sheep and goats are, the, are more at risk of disease and death from parasites than are horses and cattle. We're at a critical point with sheep and goats where they get a very pathogenic worm called barber pole worm that... How do you spell that? 
barber pole, like a barber pole, like a okay, barber pole. Okay, yeah, okay. yeah, red and white striped, and it looks red and white striped because it sucks blood. And uh, sheep and and even more so goats are highly susceptible, especially when they're young, and they die. And they die uh, when they're exposed to heavy infection. And we have used our drugs so much to control this parasite now that they don't work anymore. Uh, in a seriously don't work. And even where you are, um, where the, the disease risk is less because you've got a colder climate, and so the worms are transmitted over a shorter period of time over the year. Even up there, there's a lot of drug resistance. So uh, I haven't worked that much in, in Maine, but I have in Vermont. I've worked with producers in Vermont where they've lost sheep and goats to barber pole worm um, in the summer, uh, just like we do down here. So that's really a situation where um, where having resistance in resistance to drugs in parasites has is creating an enormous problem. So what are what are veterinarians and goat farmers doing? Well, uh, right now we're we're also with small ruminants uh, trying to encourage people to restrict drug use to animals that really need it, so we can kind of protect the drugs we. We have uh, the, what little activity they have. And the best way to do that is an extremely cool system where a sheep or goat owner can be trained to use a card that has different uh, colors of red on it, different shades of red. And they can match the, the shades of red to the uh, colors of the membranes around the eye and determine if their animals are anemic or not, and that helps okay. them know which ones need to be treated. So uh, we, we talk about kind of restricting drug use to animals that need it, but those animals that do need to be treated, we're now recommending that uh, owners use two drugs from different drug groups whenever they deworm because we don't expect a single drug anymore necessarily to be effective. So you need some understanding of um, which groups of drugs there are and the drugs that are in them. We talk about uh, genetic selection. So when you're having, when you're choosing to buy animals to find out about whether or not uh, they come from a line that is good at mounting an immune response. There is lots of information available um, for owners, and I'll just do a little plug here for uh, a group called the American Consortium for Small Ruminant Parasite Control. We have um, a website called wormx.org, I think it's wormx.org, um, that is devoted to providing information to sheep and goat owners, owners on parasite control in sheep and goats. And it's a wonderful resource. Oh, well, that's good. It's good to hear. Because there, there are a lot of people with sheep and goats in, right. in the Bosport area. That sounds pretty serious. Anything on the horizon from the pharmaceutical companies? That no, there is nothing. Oh, why? 
why the reason why is for sheep and goats not enough money make any money yeah. um, there's not enough there surprisingly the only industry that will generate interest in the pharmaceutical companies really is cattle if uh if our dewormers stop working in cattle, they'll come up with something new. Then something will happen. But until then, they can't get a return on their investment. Um, there are some, uh, there are some other products being looked at um, that could offer maybe some biocontrol. There is a fungus actually that has just become available in the U.S that feeds on these uh, worm larvae in the manure. And you can buy that now and add it to sheep and goat diets. Uh, it survives the intestinal tract? It, it, just, it just goes, passes right through the intestine, comes out in the manure and feeds on the worm larvae. And so that's not by itself effective but it helps in providing control. Um, uh, it's kind of expensive. And uh, so it hasn't been entirely enthusiastically adopted yet. But with time, the price might come down. That's another. So there's things out there that you can do. And it's important to use as many different um, parasite management tools as possible uh, right. to replace these drugs that so it's no longer give them a syringe of paste every month. And that, that was back in the 70s and 80s. It can't do that anymore. And for your dog owners, don't snooze here at this point as I'm talking about large animals because <laughs> we now have drug-resistant hookworms in dogs. Ooh. And that is a problem that is increasing daily. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, the hypothesis is it seems like probably what happened was in greyhound kennels, uh, dogs were being dewormed with the, our effective drugs very, very frequently, just like we were doing with horses and small yes. animals. They dewormed so much, they've created these uh, drug-resistant hookworms. And as as greyhound racing is kind of been shrinking and shrinking. We have all these uh, retired greyhounds now that, that need homes. They get adopted out all over the country and they're taking their hookworms with them. So, uh, so in Maine, even though I don't know if you had greyhound racing up there, but even if you didn't, chances are somebody sooner or later will adopt a greyhound from Florida and we saw, we yeah, even before I retired, I was I saw a number of greyhound uh, retirees. Yeah. yeah, and so now they they you run the risk of of introducing these uh, drug resistant hookworms, and that's a a problem we you know we don't want to deal with. We also now have drug resistant heartworms out there. Not a lot, but it doesn't you know once it starts, it doesn't reverse. And it just gradually increases. Right. So these, these monthly uh, preventatives for hooks, rounds, and whips, and heartworm, yeah. we have to be a little more careful. Some of them, we have to be more careful. So 
checking a stool checks when your veterinarian says, I'd like a stool check. And your the client will say, well, why should I? I'm on these pills. Now, my client, my pet owners out there, my listeners should realize that, yeah, you may want to get a stool check a couple times a year because exactly. of the resistance. At least annually, at least uh, annually. And, and sure. like I said, it, it, especially for you up there, uh, it, it may take longer for, for it to become a widespread problem. It may even be a while before you, you see it, but, but it's coming. You know, we can, it, it's coming. And speaking of things coming our way, change a little bit over to um, some new parasites that are arriving. And one of the, the biggest, we only have about five minutes, so we don't have a lot to talk, we, a lot to talk about, but not enough time. Um, some of the new ticks that yeah. are showing up, even in Maine, there's, uh, uh, there's three that, that you had mentioned in the email to me, uh, the Lone Star, Gulf Coast, and Longhorned. Are they... Right. So, uh, yeah, so... Um, What's going on? Some of those are pretty aggressive. The, uh, the Lone Star Tick, I know, is in Maine. Um, and it's, uh, it's a, it was traditionally a southern tick. And uh, it's been moving north. And is that climate change? Uh, maybe a bit. It's also a change in land use. Uh, that encourages deer. Deer are really great at taking ticks here and there. Um, they feed, Lone Star tick feeds on everything. So uh, once it gets into an area, it's there. It can spread some diseases. It, uh, it induces in, uh, in some people an allergy to red meat, which if you like red meat, you you know, you don't want to have an allergy to it. It can be a, a troublesome tick, and it is—it's a—it's quite aggressive. Gulf Coast tick is another tick from the south that seems to be expanding north. It too can spread some diseases in people and in animals. Um, I think that one's going to take longer to to be a problem in your area, but it does seem to be spreading north. And then we're also getting new ticks in the uh in the u.s um the the longhorn tick is a tick that has been in the u.s at least since 2010 although we didn't really appreciate it uh, uh nobody really described it till about 2018 but we've got a lot of that in um in virginia now and it can uh, spread disease uh, uh, apparently spreads a, a disease to cattle that can be uh, a problem for cattle producers. It has the ability to carry organisms that can be transmitted to people, although the CDC has been researching it and has not found any of those uh, microorganisms in the ticks that they've looked at. But the potential is there. And that one we know is in New Jersey and can go a bit farther north, I think. I just read uh, also a report of a soft tick, a the bat soft tick being recorded in in New Jersey just a week or so ago, which had never been found there before. I mean, ticks ticks are moving. Uh, I think the climate changes. Uh, they get transported to different areas. Maybe find them. It, it's more favorable to them there than it has been in the past, and so they establish. So you want to be um, 
concerned about. Dixon, and I know you're going to stop me here in a minute, but we were just, before we started recording, talking about moose, and how yes. I'd love yes. to see a moose. But there's a moose tick. The, uh, the, the um, uh, moose tick, uh, the up infect, infesting your moose in Maine, which because of the milder winters has begotten, has become much more of a problem in producing uh, ghost moose. I don't know if you talk about this in Maine. No, or not, but no. They can kill moose. And as their numbers uh, increase um, due to warmer winters, you may see an impact on your moose populations. And it's one particular tick? Yes. Dermacenter albopictus is the scientific name. Oh, I'm impressed, Anne. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> Well, it's not unbelievable, but we're running out of time. We've got about a minute. Is there anything you can tell young lady listeners about veterinary medicine, or actually even young men too, the alternatives? I mean, you've had a career in uh, education. And just for one minute, just kind of uh, advertise or tell okay, people. Well, I would say there is, I can't think of any, career that gives you more opportunities than veterinary medicine. You can be a practitioner as you have been a wonderful, rewarding career. You can go off and work in education. You can work in public health. Uh, listeners may not appreciate that public health veterinarians have an important role to play in the coronavirus situation. Uh, you you could do anything. It's amazing how many different things you can do with a veterinary degree. So if you have any interest at all in it, don't think that the only thing you can do is, is be a traditional practitioner because there's lots, lots more to do. That. It opens a lot of doors, even meat inspection and uh, foreign, keeping foreign uh, diseases out of the, of the United States. So. Right. And it has been an absolute pleasure. We're out of time. Great to talk to you. It's great seeing you and talking with you. And again, um, I, I want you back. I think we can uh, talk again uh, for another hour. Good. We'll stay in touch. Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Ann Zajac, parasitologist and my former classmate at the... Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech. My, my apologies. And this is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Art Barks to Zebras. And remember, enjoy your pet and don't forget to give them a hug.